From MPB Think Radio, this is Deep South Dining. It's the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. Kevin Farrell here with Deborah Hunter from Cooking with Honey and Friends. Today's last show during Black History Month, so we want to spend some time talking about African-American figures that have played important parts on American plates everywhere. We'll talk with author Adrian Miller on the show about his latest book, The President's Kitchen Cabinet, that looks at American African-American chefs in the White House from past to present. Share your questions and comments this morning with a phone call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 7464 or email the show food at mpbonline.org. This is Deep South Dining from MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back. This is Deep South Dining on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Deborah Hunter from Cooking with Honey and Friends. It's the last program during Black History Month, so today we want to spend some time talking about some African-American figures that have played important parts on America plates everywhere. So later in the show, after our first break, we'll talk with author Adrian Miller about his latest book, The President's Kitchen Cabinet, that looks at African-American chefs who worked in the White House from past to present. You can share your comments and experiences with us this morning by giving us a phone call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464, or you can email the show. It's food at mpbonline.org. So good morning, Deborah. Hope that you're doing well this morning. I am doing absolutely fantastic, Kevin. The flowers are like budding and blooming outside. You know, the weather's changing. Well, maybe or maybe not. We don't know because yesterday it got really cold and I was like, wow. Yeah, it, uh, earlier in the week, uh, last week, having, I think at the mid 80s was what as high it was here in, in Jackson, at least. Uh, so crazy weather, but uh, hope everyone was able to get out uh, during the weekend and enjoy the warm weather if it was warm and dry where you were. Um, I had a recipe. Uh, I actually, with those, send the the food kits. You have to pretty much stay ahead of the schedule to know which ones you want sent to you and which ones you don't. I actually had slipped up, so wasn't expecting some food, but got some. And I uh, had to butterfly a um, chicken breast. So that didn't... Uh, I don't know. It it was not as easy as I thought it might be. They you had to butterfly them and then pound them down to like one eighth, you know, uh, diameter in thickness. So I, I got that done, but they weren't the prettiest looking things. And actually, they kind of separated out into two parts, but it, it all worked well. But uh, that was my first attempt at butterflying a chicken breast. So, what was the dish that you were actually preparing? Uh, it's called chicken something or other. It was basically. <laughs> It was just sort of a pounded out fried chicken breast with um, a salad that had uh, um, spinach, shallots, lemon, uh, olive oil, and uh, toasted almonds. Okay. So so it was a panko. So you had – because in the process you breaded it with flour and then there was a mixture. And this is the second time uh, that this uh, home chef uses it, but it's um, mayonnaise diluted with water. Uh, mixed together, and that's the the wet step. So you went from uh, <clears throat> flour to the mayonnaise mixture to the panko uh, breading. Uh, 
uh, and it turned out pretty good. And then, of course, you fry it in, I think, six ounces of canola oil. Um, so I'm learning, too, about the first time I did the fried chicken, I almost uh, had a skillet that wasn't big enough. Because um, right. by the time the oil and the, the the chicken got in there, it almost bubbled over the edge. So I learned my lesson, had the larger uh, skillet out this time, and it, it seemed to work fairly well. And it, it's... Uh, I've also learned with those things is that you get everything preheated, ovens and burners and that sort of thing before you even start doing it because otherwise you, you tend to stop, you know, you get bogged down in the middle of something. And the, obviously the secret with that is, you know, everything should sort of be ready at about the same time or else you're going to get something that's cold. Absolutely. It it, it makes a difference, uh, Kevin, in your timing and it keeps the flow. And then you want to make sure that you don't ever put items that should be in hot pans in cold pans because it changes the texture of the dish. It may not cook completely, you know, and so it's, you're right. Just go ahead and preheat the ovens if you need to, you know, warm the pans while you're moving, but it's about timing and moving pretty fast. And speaking of timing, Kevin, this weekend uh, for the third year in a row, I hosted the Filmmakers Bash. And this year it was the Mardi Gras theme. And we want to say congratulations to one of our dear friends here, Melanie Kathuka, uh, the Gumbo Girl. She literally won both competitions. And this was her first year uh, competing. She won as um, the People's Choice Award. And she also won Top Chef. And it was really a wonderful, wonderful event. The other thing that happened for me this weekend, mm. Kevin, I've got a new gig. So I'm um, hanging out at McLean Lodge in Brandon, Mississippi. And so it is. this weekend for me has just been absolutely fantastic. There are going to be some amazing uh, things that I'm going to be doing out there at the lodge. And we're going to have a couple of events um, out there. And one is uh, going to be surrounding the cookbook that I have coming out. So I'm really excited to be a part of that family. So I've had a a really full weekend, and now I'm hanging out with you this morning. So. All right. Also, I had uh, orzo pasta that turned oh, out to I be. Oh, I love orzo. Uh, but it was, it was I, I, I put it in a strainer, and I, I should have rinsed it, and I didn't. So by the time I got back to it, it all clumped together to where it was almost, I couldn't even get it out of the of the strainer. So it's, uh, I like it too, but it was awfully sticky. So I'll have to learn uh a little bit better on, on the pasta. And like I say, I think the fact is I just didn't drain it when I should have or, or rinse it when I should have. It was drained, but then I think if I'd have rinsed it, um, some of the stickiness would have rinsed off, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> well, sometimes if you find yourself in a pinch like that, one of the things you can do, Kevin, is put it back in um, the pot itself. And you may just want to take a little milk or a little cream and kind of give it a nice little stir so that you just don't have that lump of orzo or or even with your rice. In a pot, it's just a quick way. You know, a lot of times if there's too much starch, of course, even, you know, with just regular rice, it will stick. And, of course, ozo is a, is a very fine pasta. Mm-hmm. And the same trick will work. Just a little bit of uh, heavy cream or or milk will do the trick. Yeah, in this case, you did put it back in uh, to heat it back up with some, um, I can't remember what I put in there. But also there was some uh, Parmesan cheese that got mixed up in there. So, yes, in this case, <laughs> I was fortunate that it was going back into a heated pot to where to get heated back up again. But boy, it was, it was pretty much one giant clump of pasta there for a little while. So, but you know, that's the other thing that these, uh, these, uh, send it home things kind of teach you is that you're in the middle of something and, you know, unless you want to just 
chunk it all away and you know you you learn to adapt and and do the best you can with what you got so well that's the thing i love about cooking kevin because again there's always these teachable moments that are really life lessons that are applicable to any and everything that we're doing in life and so when you find yourself in a pinch you have to decide in this moment is this part of my life i want to throw away or is this something i can you know use my brain as a little bit of ingenuity and figure it out and usually if we will take the time to do that we'll end up with a pretty delicious life dish. So you brought in, as usual, something for us to eat this morning. So why don't you tell us what you brought in today? So, of course, we're celebrating soul food, Kevin, and I'm a soulful girl. And so today uh, what I've brought in is a really simple, traditional dish. we got some turkey necks that have been cooked down, and we cooked them down with uh, some uh, onions and peppers, and we served it over rice. It's a really simple dish, very yummy, very flavorful. It's got just a little bit of heat in it. Um, but it's really a very wonderful, delightful bite, Kevin. Yeah, would it be really a nice, uh, it's a warm supper, so that would be something to come home to. And also you had some uh, potatoes in there that I thought turned out really well. And even though there were two starches in this dish, it's part of the conversation that we're having today because this particular dish lends to a story. And a lot of times what would happen, especially growing up in my grandmother's house, and just like many homes across America, you know, your grandmother, your great-grandmother had to figure out how to feed, you know, not one or two kids like we do today, but sometimes, you know, there were 13 to 18 people in one house. And so you use what you had to create these large potluck kinds of deal and you uh, took whatever was left over and you created these uh, really wonderful dishes uh let's uh, let's get a call in before our first break it's our friend kathleen from osaka good morning kathleen happy monday girl <laughs> good morning i haven't been too vocal last couple of weeks i've been so down and out with the cold and i didn't want to leave i have to evict it hmm. um i wanted to talk to you about when you said about mistakes Kevin, I dearly love you. You make me look so good. (laughs) I had so much trouble when I first started out. A lady had told me how to do this one recipe, and it was on my own, a 250-person dinner. I had several, you know, assistant chefs and, you know, preps and stuff. But we were putting together a bread pudding, and someone forgot to put the sugar. Mm. I had all the containers in front of me, and it wasn't there, so... I didn't ask. I put it all together, baked it, and I tasted it right before we served. I said, it's not right. I had to go back on, poke holes in it, pour sugary water into it, <laughs> and then bake it a little bit, and it came out perfect. But you really got to scramble, and you got to know what you do in the beginning because you can't come up with something really crazy. Well, yeah, I was about to say, you know, but that again, that goes back to, you know, the wonderful thing about cooking is really being able to take those experiences and challenge yourself. Even when you think you've messed up, a lot of times you really haven't. You just have to rethink how you're doing things. And that's the beautiful gift about our brains is it's always trying to figure out how to do things for us and help us get there. So even when you make a mistake, as sim- something as simple as leaving the sugar out initially. Uh-huh. to quickly come up with a simple syrup and to, you know, pour it over your dish. You know, there you have it. All right. Yeah. Thank you so much, guys. I hope you make it through. Okay. Kevin, good luck. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, Kathleen, for the call. 
Uh, let's take a quick break. When we get back, uh, we're going to talk with James Beard, award-winning author Adrian Miller. He writes about African-Americans' relationship to food in America, including the White House. So t- stay tuned. You can join our conversation with a phone call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 We'll be back with more after this. MPB Radio Reading Service provides blind Mississippians like me with access to news, books, and sale info that helps me save money. That's my MPB story. Welcome back. This is Deep South Dining on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Deborah Hunter from Cooking with Honey and Friends. Uh, on the phone in just a minute, we're going to be talking with our guest this morning. It's uh, James Beard, award-winning author Adrian Miller. Uh, he's written a new book called The President's Kitchen Cabinet that looks at the African-American chefs in the White House from past to present. He also wrote a book about uh, the soul food, the surprising story of an American cuisine, one plate at a time. So let's welcome to the show our guest, uh, Adrian Miller. Adrian, thanks for joining us today. Good to be with you. Hey, good morning, Adrian. Of course, you know I'm really excited about this. Uh, Kevin, Adrian and I belong to um, a social media page that celebrates uh, African-American cuisines and some of their top chefs. So I am so honored to have you here with me this morning. Yeah, thank you. Adrian, tell us a little about your background. Uh, I understand that uh, author was not your first uh, career choice. No, so I'm a lawyer by training. Okay. Uh, and I grew up in Denver, Colorado, which uh, loses me all street cred on the subject of soul food. <laughs> <laughs> but I went back by telling people that my parents are from the South. My mom's from Chattanooga, Tennessee. My dad is from Helena, Arkansas. So I grew up eating soul food. Um, but yeah, I was a lawyer by training, and then I got a chance to work in the Clinton White House. So I worked for President Clinton on something called the Initiative for One America. It was a racial reconciliation uh, effort. And then I worked for some think tanks in Colorado, and then I worked for Colorado's governor, and then I decided to write the book on soul food. So why soul food, Adrian? Of all the subjects that you could have chosen to to write about, why was this um, something that you desired to do? Well, it was basically I was unemployed for a little while coming out of the uh, Clinton White House because, shockingly, George W. Bush did not want me working for him. (laughs) So um, I was watching way too much daytime television, and it got to the (laughs) point where I said, you know, I need to read something. So I went to the bookstore. I got this book called Southern Food at Home on the Road in History, written by the late John Edgerton. And in that book, he wrote that the tribute to African-American cookery has yet to be written. So he was alive at the time. I reached out to him because I figured somebody had done that. And he said, nobody's done it. So with no qualifications at all, except for eating a lot of soul food and cooking it some, I dove in and wrote the book. Well, I think that those are the best qualifications to have. Absolutely. That definitely (laughs) gives you street creds. All right, cool. We're talking with uh, author Adrian Miller about uh, two of his books. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, his book, Soul Food, The Surprising Story of an American Cuisine, uh, but also he's written a book called The President's Kitchen Cabinet. So, Adrian, how would you define soul food? So I define soul food as really the cuisine of the African-American migrants who left the South and went to other parts of the country. So inside the South, you know, the, the Southern menu is far more extensive than it is when you get out of the South because it was a function of what could you get. Um, so that's one part of the story. But the other part of the story is really soul food is the celebration food of the South. Because when you mm-hmm. think about immigrant cuisines in this country, what we usually think of as their food is usually the celebration food of the old country. And that's what soul food is. The fried chicken, barbecue, the glorious cakes and cobblers. 
that was stuff that people only had every once in a while. And so it's a hybrid of that celebration food and the day-in and day-out stuff of greens, cornbread, black-eyed peas. So I think it's a much more complex cuisine than people give it credit. And I guess if you're in a new area and you're sort of reflecting back on, on your culture, your cuisine, you would sort of you would naturally gravitate to those celebration foods as you talk about. So it seems to be kind of a, a, a no-brainer on that one. Yeah, but it was, it was a new way for people to think about soul food because I don't think people had thought about it that way. I think what's really interesting for me, Adrian, is um, you, you keep using the terms celebratory, but traditionally, you know, growing up here in Mississippi, the staples that, uh, you know, my cousins and my aunts and my brothers who now live in California or New York or Chicago, you know, those were the staples, again, that we ate every day. So I don't know so much that we called it a celebration. It was a standard of living, and it and and it came from I, I think that African Americans traditionally, uh, based on Southern uh, traditions of religion, had this attitude of being grateful and saying thank you for everything. It was thank mm-hmm. you that I made it through the day, and you know thank you that I have something to eat, and thank you that I was able to feed my children. And so then it became this idea. Uh, even uh, across the pulpits in the churches here in the South, it was these uh, the the sermons translated from you know we're giving you spiritual soul food, but then after church it was you got to have those bites of soul food on the church ground. Right, but see that was something that only happened once a week, right? It wasn't something that was every day. And so what I'm arguing is that soul food at its core because it, usually you have the everyday food and then you have the special occasion food once in a while. But soul food has kind of flipped that script. So the celebration stuff became more commonplace in the diet. So, you know, like fried chicken was something that people ate maybe a few times a year during a certain time of the year. And now it's an everyday convenience. So, so where did they eat it a few times a year at, Adrian? Because in Mississippi, it was growing up. I grew up on the farm. So so it was, you know, these were traditional staples that we had um, all the time. You know, it was it, Sunday dinner translated into something different because everybody from the community would come to church. And, and I think Kevin and I, we were talking about this a, a couple of weeks ago. You would we would bring, uh, you know, if my mama cooked the best cornbread, she would bring it to church church if somebody else's mama cooked the best greens and then we'd have dinner on the grounds but and in terms of day-to-day living uh, adrian a lot of these staples were things that we ate every day it's just that sunday was that soul food day and so then i guess if you're going to use the term celebration we celebrated um on sundays both the spiritual yeah. man and and the natural man oh yeah so let me forgive me for not being more precise so i'm talking about when you go back to the 1800s i mean People would have uh, fried chicken as a spring dish. Okay. And it was not something that people ate a lot. Because, you know, you've heard that term, he's no spring chicken. <laughs> yes. That, that's a reference to that. So back in the day, chickens were eaten at a precise time because that's how the women were favored. But, again, because of the agricultural miracle um, that's happened in this country, these things are now more plentiful than they used to be. So I, I'm not... I'm not denying your experience at all. I'm sorry. I'm going way back in time. And I'm just, what I argue in my book is how that thing has changed over time over the past couple of centuries to where we are now. And I, and I would agree with you that with that, um, of, of course, during the era of slavery, you know, we, we know that that is a very harsh story and that there were rare times, a lot of times that uh, the slaves would even have an opportunity to eat meat. A lot of their uh, diet was a root based or vegetable based diets. And when they did have meats, it was those 
portions that were considered to be um, uh, the lesser or, or something that could be discarded, you know. And so there's where you get the conversation of chitlins and, um, you know, turkey necks and neck bones and those kinds of conversations because those were the things that were considered to be scraps. So you're absolutely right about that. So the interesting thing about that is, yes, it's true that meat was often used to season vegetables. Um, but if you look at what enslaved people were eating back in the day, it's very close to what we call vegan. Because it was seasonal vegetables, exactly. um, water, and um, the enslaved cooks did not have access to a lot of processed ingredients. Absolutely. You know, white flour, white sugar, those kind of things. But when you, when you start to peel it back, you find that even poor whites were eating a lot of the same foods. And then even something like chitlins was once uh, food of rich people. So it's not necessarily true that it's always the undesired cuts of meat that went to the enslaved people, because some of that stuff was stuff that white people ate as well. We're visiting with Adrian Miller, who's author of the book Soul Food, The Surprising Story of an American Cuisine, One Plate at a Time. Uh, in the book, you break down certain foods by chapter and tell about how they became staple soul food dishes. We mentioned a little bit about uh, fried chicken. What about yams? Yeah, so yams are in this country are dark flesh sweet potatoes. So it's something that um, actually originates in the Americas and goes to Africa, where they aren't well-received because the Africans really like their native yams more than the sweet potatoes, but eventually they get embraced. But on this side of the Atlantic, um, people that were used to eating root crops in their diet often requested more and more sweet potatoes. And then in time, these sweet potatoes get called yams on this side. So there's a lot of confusion about yams versus sweet potatoes. But really, the reason why we have yams in our market, quote-unquote, is because some Louisiana farmers in the 1920s just wanted to come up with a name that would distinguish their dark flesh, sweeter sweet potatoes from other sweet potatoes. Absolutely. And then, of course, you know, Kevin, we've talked about, you know, uh, yams, and Adrian, I'm sure you would agree with us. Sweet potatoes are going to be the very small version of a potato. You can usually generally just fit them in your hands. Yams are very, very large. Uh, the skin on a yam is a lot tougher to peel. It's a lot tougher root vegetable in and of itself. And the texture may not initially be as sweet as just the regular sweet potatoes that we're used to in the marketplace today. Uh-huh. And, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, you're fine. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah, so the interesting thing is that, um, especially during slavery and even afterwards, um, roasted sweet potatoes was one of the earliest kind of quote-unquote desserts. So people, at the end of the meal, they had a fire going. They would just kind of put the sweet potatoes, maybe rump some lard on them or something else, but they would put them in the ashes and just let it roast until it got nice and tender, and then they would eat that as a dessert. All right, so how about red drink? What is that? Oh, yeah, so that's one of my favorite things. So I believe <laughs> red Kool-Aid is the official soul food drink. Now, you have to understand that in soul food culture, red is a color and a flavor. So we don't say things are cherry or strawberry or tropical. You know, it's just red. But um, I believe that red drinks are a nod to two ancestral red drinks that come from West Africa. One is cola, um, and cola nuts are either white or a, a reddish hue, and hibiscus. And so those drinks come across the Atlantic during the slave trade and take root over here. And I believe that red Kool-Aid is really a nod to those because when you look at newspaper accounts of celebrations, especially emancipation celebrations, there's always some kind of red drink. Um, involved. In the early years, it was typically red lemonade, but over time, uh, Kool-Aid becomes much more popular because it's so cheap, and then you see a lot of Kool-Aid served at celebrations, particularly church um, dinners. Hmm. All right, and, and then what about greens? 
So greens were very central to the West African diet. And um, what you find is that enslaved African Americans were essentially um, following their culinary heritage and substituting the bitter greens of West Africa for the bitter greens of Europe that grew mm-hmm. over here. And so that's why collards, kale, mustard, turnip, all burnt bitter greens are part of the soul food repertoire. And I tell people, you know, for those of you who have discovered kale in the last five to ten years, welcome to the party. <laughs> Absolutely. And the wonderful thing, you know, Adrian, sometimes when I, when I look back and you think about this diet, even though, uh, you know, there hasn't always been a very positive conversation always around it, when you think about the labor and tense hours that a lot of the slaves had to work, or people just worked, uh, period. A lot of these foods actually worked for their bodies and not against them. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, to have a certain amount of a starch during the day to, you know, t- to have the energy that you needed or to have, you know, fibrous things like greens um, in your diet that literally uh, helped to build strong bones and muscles so that you could have the energy that you needed to sometimes work 18-hour um, work days. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. And so, you know, it was a diet that suited the needs of uh, agricultural work, right, Um, burning all of those calories. And so things get kind of um, different when people move out of the South. They move from a rural context to an urban context, and they may not be doing work, uh, you know, the hard work that they were doing back in, um, in the country. And so they get a more sedentary lifestyle, and then that has health implications. So what I tell people is, you know, soul food is not bad per se, right? You just what you have to watch what you eat, the portions, and make sure you do things in moderation. But even when you think about what nutritionists are telling us to eat, more dark leafy greens, more sweet potatoes, mm-hmm. okra, hibiscus, these are all the building blocks of soul food. Absolutely. And, you know, growing up, Adrian, um, my grandparents had a farm, and so they raised a lot of these items that you and I are now talking about. But um, so when I hear the conversation and people say, well, you know, well, soul food is the reason why we have some of the the weight issues, you know, around the country. I say to people, it's really not the food, it's the sanitary lifestyles that's attached to the food that creates the the issue because we would get up at 5 o'clock in the morning and uh, and a lot of times our work day, um, Adrian, would not end until sunset. So from sunrise to sunset, your body is moving and you're doing something, whether we were plowing in the fields or picking, um, you know, uh, okra, breaking okra or pulling corn. We were doing something all day. And so you're burning those calories and those ener- that, you know, that energy opposed to eating a, a plate of something and then sitting down and watching, you know, eight hours of television. <laughs> That is a serious schedule. Did you ever run away from home? No. <laughs> so, so let me tell you what's, what was really incredible about growing up, and I'm sure a lot of Southerners will tell you this story, when you don't, you don't know what you don't know. And, if, and so uh, I think it, growing up, I was probably the richest kid in the block because we had family and community <laughs> and friends and church. And um, my grandmother would walk her friends a piece away home. So what we had that a lot of times that I didn't find when I would go visit my cousins in other areas is we had the fellowship of love. And that's where uh, the the tie of soul food, really, that revival is birthed from that kind of community. If 
there was a hog killed in the springtime, Adrian, everybody in the in the neighborhood, because my grandfather would kill a hog, would get a, a piece of meat. And so you would share with your neighbors. It was taking care of your community because all we had was each other. And so if everybody uh-huh. was sharing the same experience, you didn't know that there was something missing. Yep, yep. And you know what really cracks me up is a lot of people who blame soul food um, for dietary problems. If you actually look at what people are eating, I bet you they're not eating a lot of soul food. I think they're eating a lot of junk food. We need to take a quick break, Adrian. Uh, We're going to move on for just a minute. Uh, We're talking with author Adrian Miller. Uh, His new book is called The President's Kitchen Cabinet, the story of African-Americans who fed our first families from the Washingtons to the Obamas. We'll talk about about that book, and if you would like to join our conversation, you can give us a call. The number is 1-877-MPB-RING. It's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can email the show food at mpbonline.org. Back with more after this. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to Deep South Dining on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Deborah Hunter from Cooking with Honey and Friends. We're visiting today with James Beard Award-winning author Adrian Miller. We spoke to him a little bit about his book, Soul Food, The Surprising Story of an American Cuisine. Uh, But now we're going to transition and talk about his new book, and it's called The President's Kitchen Cabinet, The Story of the African Americans Who Fed Our First Families from the Washingtons to the Obamas. So, um, Adrian, tell us a little bit about this new book. Yeah, so while I was researching the book on the history of soul food, I came across stories of African Americans who had cooked for our presidents. And so I thought, man, if I could just pull enough stories together, I'd love to do that. And at that time, I had about five or six. And then as I did more research, I personally have identified 150 African-Americans who have been in the presidential kitchen from Washington all the way to the current president. There's one character that you read about, and her name is Daisy McPhee Barner. Tell Mm -hmm. us a little bit about her. Yeah, so she was a private cook for a wealthy white family in Warm Springs, Georgia. And President Franklin Delano Roosevelt would go to Warm Springs to get uh, treatments for his polio. And he would stay there for weeks at a time. So this family, to ingratiate themselves with the president, would loan Daisy Bonner to him as their cook. And he got her, um, and she got him hooked on all kinds of southern food. Um, There's a dish called Country Captain, which is a chicken curry dish that's popular in Georgia. A lot of southern food. uh, But the one thing that was notable is she got him hooked on pig's feet. (laughs) He loved pig feet so much that he actually served him to Winston Churchill in the White House. <laughs> How incredible is that? Mm-hmm. And the way she would do it is she would broil them, split them, and butter them. Hmm. So, so, Adrian, have you ever had pig feet before? Oh, yeah. I'm absolutely. so proud of you. <laughs> <laughs> so is this a history that people were trying to hide, or is this just something that was not well known? It just wasn't well-known, because if you go back in newspapers of the day, they certainly did talk about these cooks, but, um, you know, it just kind of faded over time. So I was happy to to compile the stories and really present this unique view on the presidency. Um, And, you know, a lot of this, a lot of the African-Americans were in the kitchen before cooking was glamorous, as it is today. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because, what you know, back in the day, a lot of people didn't want to be in the kitchen, actually. Uh, You know, they wanted to do other stuff, but African-Americans had, employment opportunities severely, uh, you know, circumscribed by um, 
whites. And so there were only few occupations they could do without, you know, being uh, worrying about being too successful. Uh, what role did slaves play in early presidential kitchens? Oh, played a huge role because we've had so many slaveholding presidents. And what a lot of people don't know is before Truman, um, Congress did not allot any money to the president in order to cover their entertaining and food budgets. So a lot of presidents had to pay for this out of their own pockets. So when slaveholding presidents became uh, came into office, they would often bring their enslaved cooks with them for a couple of reasons. One is they, they were going to get reliable food, and the second is uh, they could save a lot of money. So the first notable example is Hercules, the enslaved cook at Mount Vernon, who cooked for President Washington in um, Philadelphia because D.C. was being constructed at the time. And um, Pennsylvania had this law that if you were in Pennsylvania soil for six months as an enslaved person, you'd be free. So what Washington did to get around that is right around the six-month deadline, he'd pack up all the enslaved people in Philadelphia, send them to Mount Vernon, leave them there for a couple weeks, and then bring them back. And he does this throughout his presidency. Um, we are speaking with James Beard award-winning author Adrian Miller about his new book called The President's Kitchen Cabinet, the story of the African-Americans who fed our first families from the Washingtons to the Obamas. We have a caller on the line, so why don't we invite Sharon from Ridgeland into the conversation. Good morning, Sharon. Good morning. Good, good morning. I lived in Cameroon, West Africa for two and a half years and worked with rural farm women. And the very foods that we call soul food, we ate um, okra and sweet potatoes and greens and maize. They just fixed it a different way. And for Mm -hmm. chickens, chickens were only eaten during celebration because the women could not afford it. I asked once the question to the women, when is the last time you ate an egg? Most of the young women had not eaten an egg because the egg cost almost a dollar. And they make somewhere about $65 a year. So we started raising chickens and laying hens so that the, the women could feed their children and eat an egg at least a couple of times a month. It's really amazing to go to the market and see all of the things that we call soul food that I recognize, uh, you know, in the market. Well, I think what what is really interesting to add to that story is, um, Sharon, is that a lot of times when the slaves would come on the slave ships from Africa and travel to the Americas, a lot of people don't understand, like, the headwear and the braidings and those kinds of things, but food, uh, seeds would be smuggled in into uh, the U.S. and, you know, certain food staples would be smothered in so that they could have that same variety of food that it's being served, uh, even those things that we are enjoying now. A lot of those things actually just got smuggled in so that people would still be able to enjoy those staples, and okra was one of those things. Uh, So, Adrian, any thought on on Sharon's call? Oh, no, I just think that that squares with my research. Uh, Mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot of those things we call soul food are... You know, um, it was a heritage from West Africa. So it's, it's great to hear, get that call and get see that what's happening still even to this day. We're visiting with Adrian Miller, author of two interesting books. Uh, we talked a little bit about Soul Food, the surprising story of an American cuisine. And also we're talking about his latest book called The President's Kitchen Cabinet, the story of the African-Americans who fed our first families from the Washingtons to the Obamas. 
So um, you mentioned or you have in the book some of the recipes from these presidential chefs. If you would, tell us a little bit about the process of, of, of picking those out, because I imagine that was quite difficult. Yeah, so what I, when I would go through my sources, if I could find a recipe that was directly um, you know, linked to an African-American presidential chef, I tried to include that recipe. Um, a lot of times they would just describe the dishes and not necessarily give the recipe. So then it took a little bit of uh, research to kind of round it out. But I, I managed to find some uh, alumni of the White House Kitchen who were willing to share their recipes. And then I went to presidential libraries, and uh, many of the presidential libraries have recipes as well. So that's how I kind of cobbled all of those recipes together. And then in some cases, if I didn't have a recipe, I reached out to a chef or a bartender and said, hey, can you create a dish that's inspired by a particular president? And um, a few were willing to do that as well. So how has this research and uh, affected your personal culinary experience? Like when you sit down now to have a meal, how does it affect you emotionally, you know, spiritually when you after, you know, learning so much information? Oh, well, it's definitely deepened my relationship with the food because, you know, before I just like, oh, I'm hungry. This tastes good. End of story, right? Right. Um, but, but now I have context and I understand the continuity and I understand the story of that food. So it makes me much more appreciative for what I'm, I'm eating and the story of our people, where we've been, uh, where we are now and where I think we're going. So um, it, it's really just heightened the experience. So you Because rem- I have much more consciousness about food now. You were mentioning those recipes that you gathered from the presidential chefs. Uh, give us an idea of the variety. What are some of the things? I think you mentioned FDR and, and pig's feet. What, what are some of the extra <laughs> interesting things you yeah, found I don't about have things? A recipe for that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, one, for example, I have a mint green pea soup, um, which was a favorite of Laura Bush. And that was not necessarily created by a, a black chef, but it's a nod to a story about, I write in my book about George Washington loving green peas and possibly getting almost getting poisoned uh, by somebody and being saved by a black chef from being poisoned um, Mm. with the green peas. Um, Because I tell people, people don't realize George Washington loved green peas so much that his contemporaries called him P. Diddy. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Now, Adrian, you can't see everybody in the studio. My producer has just basically laid out at this point. It's just pretty hilarious. (laughs) Uh, And then I have recipes from uh, the first woman to serve on Air Force One. Her name was Wanda Joel. Um, She was on Air Force One from George Herbert Walker Bush to Obama. So she had a French, she made a Hawaiian bread French toast that was pretty popular on Air Force One. Mm -hmm. And then a jerk chicken pita pizza from Charlie Redden, who was the first White House executive chef in the White House mess. And uh, he would uh, cook for uh, Clinton and George W. Bush. I think what, you know, what is incredible to me, um, Adrian, is no matter what page of history that you turn from beginning to end, that there has been an influence of African-American culinary experiences in, you know, all over the country, all over the world, actually, Mm -hmm. for every dish that Mm -hmm. we pick up, whether, you know, it's uh, seasonings from Jamaica or Africa or, you know, or some staple from right here in Mississippi, there's, you know, there's this soulful influence that really influenced the entire world. And so it's just, you know, it, it makes it visible, more visible when you can pick up a book like yours and be able to read the historical portions of African-American chefs, even in the White House. Yes. And the interesting thing is that these people were celebrated culinary artists. They were family confidants. And in many cases, they were civil rights advocates, and they gave our presidents a window on black life that they may not have had otherwise. 
We're on the phone with Adrian Miller. He is the author of the new book, The President's Kitchen Cabinet, the story of the African-Americans who fed our first families from the Washingtons to the Obamas. Adrian, we're nearing the end of our time, so if you would, maybe share another sort of interesting factoid or or a story that you got from the book. Yeah, so um, one of my favorite personalities from the book was a woman named Zephyr Wright, who was the longtime uh, personal cook for Lyndon Johnson. And uh, when Lyndon Johnson was pressing for the 1964 Civil Rights Act, he actually used her experiences in the Jim Crow South to persuade members of Congress to support the bill. And after he signed the bill, he gave her one of the pins and said, you deserve this as much as anyone. Hmm. Oh, wow. Wow. So uh, if people want more information about uh, the two books that we've been talking about, uh, The Soul Food, The Surprising Story of an American Cuisine, or The President's Kitchen Cabinet, Adrian, where can they find out more information about you and these books? So they can go to my website, which is www.soulfoodscholar, all one word, .com, and I'll have everything for you. Um, and you'll see my tagline at the big, top of the webpage. It's dropping knowledge like hot biscuits. <laughs> <laughs> well, Adrian, you're going to have to come to Mississippi and hang out and have a bite with us sometime. All right. That sounds good. All right. Thanks very much. Uh, we've been visiting with Adrian Miller, award-winning author. Uh, and we're going to take a break and wrap things up on Deep South Dining here on MPB Think Radio. Welcome back. This is Deep South Dining on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Deborah Hunter from Cooking with Honey and Friends. Again, a, a thanks to our guest this hour, author Adrian Miller. I uh, had a great conversation with him about two of his books. The first book we talked about uh, was called Soul Food, The Surprising Story of an American Cuisine. We also talked about his book, The President's Kitchen Cabinet, the story of the African-Americans who fed our first families from the Washingtons to the Obamas. A lot of research involved uh, in both of those books and uh, in the book about the uh, um, the White House chefs. He mentioned that he had a lot of uh, good recipes. So if you want to dine like a president, I might be so you could check, feet and check all. out that book and see what Adrian found out. I so. can't wait to see what's next for Adrian, um, you know, because he's had a, a really great influence on the culinary community, especially the African-American community in terms of exposing information and just kind of, you know, lifting spirits and, and sharing. So I'm excited to see what happens with him next. So uh, we were talking earlier about, uh, the you know, the food that you brought in. And I mentioned that I did my um, – I'm trying to think of what generic term you can use for that. The send send you the food at home. I don't know how you would a big box boxed food, whatever it is. But anyway, uh, one of the other things I thought that was kind of tasty that I think is easy because uh, the other thing I try to do with these is you know you certainly enjoy them while you can. But I always try to see well is there anything a side dish or something that I could do to where this is not just a one time only sort of thing. This might be something I could use in future meals when I do them on my own. And uh, one thing that I'd like to try again is pesto butter. Or the idea of taking butter and infusing it with any sort of flavor, which uh, to me, you know, uh, is certainly good. This the um, they put the pesto butter on the steak that I cooked this weekend, and it turned out to be quite good. But uh, something like that's fairly simple: soften the butter and kind of mix in mm-hmm. whatever flavor you want. Uh, and taking. Um you know, fresh basils or mints and adding it right to your butter, it does. It, it uh, heightens the flavor. And you can take it from something very savory with your butter to something uh, a little bit, you know, more sweet or even spicy. So you're right. Just, you know, playing around with butter at home is a great thing to do, you know, to get some nice little containers. Once you've done it, seal it up and keep it in the refrigerator. And there you have, you know, something that you would normally spend a high dollar for in the marketplace, 
and you've you know spent very little money at home to create those savory bites for yourself. That thing that was interesting is <clears throat> they called it lemon aioli, um, and it was basically mayonnaise with. Um, Lemon zest in it, and at that point it became lemon laissez oignon. Oh, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's kind of funny because yeah, you you make some sort of something fancy, and you're thinking, well, that's just you know. Uh, but uh, the lemon zester, I think, is one of my favorite tools to uh, to use because when I first started cooking, and it was like, take the zest of one lemon, and I thought, well, what could that possibly? Because it's hard to even, you know. But work. Adding, adding the zest, of just a little zest of lemon, you, you will know, will change a dish oh, yes. uh, yeah. tremendously. But not only that, if you would just research the health benefits of lemon zest, people would probably put it on every dish that they ate. So uh, it's the zest in and of itself or the skin of the lemon that's finely grated really does add a powerful difference to any dish that you're cooking. And it's one of those where uh, it certainly does well to uh, the scent, the aroma in your kitchen. Uh, Although I will also say that uh, the last couple of dishes I've had involve shallots, and they're not quite as bad as onions, but uh, if you don't watch out, you can... You get a little tears in your eyes from from shallots <laughs> as well as onions. So. Yeah, shallots are a really uh, wonderful bite as well, uh, Kevin. But the thing is, is to, you know, if you just chill them a few minutes before you start to, sl- to slice them or to chop them, it helps to reduce some of the irritants that you, you may get. Uh, and, of course, with your onions, once you slice them, if you turn them face down, you won't get so much irritation as well. So there are just little bitty things that you can do to stop from getting those kinds of irritations when you're cooking. But adding those little bites to any dish makes a powerful difference in the flavor and overall taste of your dish. So um, anything you wanted to add about your – your um, what what would you call your dish that you sent us this morning? I mean, it was turkey necks and rice. I mean, is there any sort of fancy name for that? No, it's just turkey necks and rice. And I think that's <laughs> the other thing about, you know, uh, soul food in the conversation, Kevin, is it's just not complicated food. It's very simple. It's very comforting in and of itself. And, again, you know, the, the, there are many uh, conversations to be had about soul food. Uh, you know, if you can imagine – uh, a grandmother standing in the kitchen and she's trying to figure out how I'm going to feed all these grandbabies. And so what you would have was this humming and this praying and this cooking. And you're you're talking to God about how to take care of your family and you're feeding them things that are literally coming from your soul. So it's not just uh, the, the food itself. It's the combination of things. It's the combination of food and the idea of spirituality that goes along with it, the love and the care that goes into the food. And it's what every family should be doing, whether you're African-American or whatever your ethnicity is, is when you're in the kitchen preparing, everything that you should do should be soulful. It should come from your heart. It should come, you know, because you're taking care of those that you love. Now, Deborah, we only have uh, about a few minutes left, but one thing that James, uh, not James, but Adrian talked about in his book about soul food is how um, these simple dishes, these soul food dishes are being incorporated into like, I guess, the larger American society. So how do you feel about that? Because like you said, soul food, it's not anything fancy or complicated. It's pretty simple dishes, a few ingredients, but it goes for a high dollar (laughs) at some, you know, particular places. Well, you know, that that conversation, uh, Java, can become very interesting because, uh, you know, traditionally what you find is uh, in the African-American community, a lot of times you find a creative staple, whether it's food or fashions, that's being done on a very simple uh, level. And then it is being exploited 
uh, in corporate uh, situations for the dollar. And so it, it, it for me, it, it goes to a conversation that we need to have about being entrepreneurs and being business savvy along with everything that we own because every other culture in the world is doing that. And so it's about educating yourself to what you have and really putting a value on what you have. And a lot of times what I've found in the world, you know, sometimes people can have a house full of yummy stuff and don't realize the value of what it is. Also, I think to Java's point, I think one of my favorite lines from our guest, uh, Adrian Miller today was he said, uh, you know, if you've just discovered kale, you're you're 30 years too late to the party. So it's interesting how, you know, something can seem simple and plain and and whatever. But then as food tastes evolve, uh, that, it it, you know, it becomes something that everybody now thinks is the is the new stuff and is is looking to to put on their plate. It's marketing. It's it's PR. And, you know, and it's it's building a conversation around something and then reselling it. And that's really all that's happening in the marketplace today. Uh, You know, you'll you'll have uh, this conversation where somebody is saying, you know, it's vegan soul food and, and they're selling it from a healthier perspective. But you're taking what somebody's grandmother cooked every day to take care of her kids and to keep them healthy and then you're reselling it in the marketplace you know for something very expensive so all right uh, that's it for today just a reminder if you have uh some suggestions about people or places uh, topics that you'd like to hear us discuss on the air uh, send in a suggestion to food at mpbonline.org deep south dining is a production of mississippi public broadcasting think radio funded by generous contributions from you our listeners our show is produced by java chapman and our call screener is michelle mcadoo so for deborah hunter and our guest author adrian miller i'm kevin farrell stay tuned next it's now you're talking with marshall ramsey followed by southern remedy at 11 and we'll be back next monday at nine for another deep south dining heard only on mpb think radio